will be in Acts chapter 2. And we know that Acts chapter 2 is all about the inauguration of end times, eschatological realities. I'm hoping to redeem that phrase, end times, because we have totally distorted, twisted, and perverted it. So, end times is all about glory. End times is all about joy and beauty. It's the times we live in. And so we have in Acts the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And the prophet Joel, he said that was to take place. When was the Spirit supposed to be poured out, he said? In the end times. And, and he uses the phrase, the last days. The last in Greek is eschatos, which is why we love the word eschatological. The days of fulfillment. And so it's through this pouring out of the Holy Spirit by none other than the risen and exalted Messiah that a new eschatological people. And I I don't know, I'm encouraging you. When you sing songs, just take a moment to hear everyone else's voices, to look around you and see the people you're sitting next to. That's the beauty of this time. It's not just you listening to someone or singing your solo, right? We're singing together. We're hearing together now. We're doing the fellowship together. This new eschatological people has been birthed, the people who belong to Messiah's kingdom and partake of all the blessings of his present rule and reign where he's ruling right now. We get the blessings of that. And so it's because of your identity as an eschatological people, well, in Acts 2, because of their identity, that they were devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles. That's what, that's what people like this do because of who they are. And they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Remember, what's so special about the apostles? Well, they delivered to us all that Jesus said to them. Jesus being our eschatological lawgiver, the one greater than Moses. We're living in the end times. Moses has been fulfilled in Jesus. The fellowship, what's that? We remember, it's the eschatological reality of all of us having come to share with each other in Jesus. We share in Jesus with each other. There's this beautiful reality of the fellowship because we've all come to share in the Spirit with each other. And how were the believers devoting themselves continually to the fellowship? By devoting themselves to the breaking of bread and to the prayers, which we've had this morning. Why did we just pray now? Why why do we take time to pray a a lengthy, you know, an extensive prayer? Why do I pray after Greg just finished praying, right? Because that's what we gather to do on Sunday, the prayers. That's why we have prayers all throughout. The Lord's Supper is an eschatological meal. It's a meal that didn't exist before Jesus and could only exist after him. But more than that, it's a meal that is a sign of our fellowship, our participation together in Jesus. The prayers are also eschatological. How are they eschatological? Because we pray in the name of Jesus. Before Jesus, they didn't pray in the name of Jesus. They didn't call on his name like we do today. But now we do, because we live in the end times. And so, the prayers are also an expression of the fellowship we have with one another in Christ. I mean, in a sense, I'd love it. I don't know, you know, it would be a great idea (laughs) if when I finish praying or whoever prays up here after the scripture reading, if the whole congregation said, Amen. There's that congregational amen that recognizes that as a body, as as the fellowship created in Christ, we participate in this together. All right, it's against the backdrop of all this that we keep going, and there's more. Luke continues in verse 43, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. We've already talked about this, so I'm going to be brief here, but the fear that came upon every soul 
was a result of the fact that the people got it. Okay, remember that's the phrase I've kind of been using there. They realized what they were seeing, what they were witnessing. So they were witnessing the final drama. This is it. Here it is. It's arrived. Right? They're witnessing that. The age of the Messiah and of his spirit. So the many wonders and signs that were taking place through the apostles, we're all like, yeah, I'd, I'd be full of fear and amazement and trembling off. I saw all those signs and wonders. But no, no. No. That is not what they were so filled with fear over. They've seen wonders and signs before at some level. But what they're filled with fear about is what those wonders and signs are pointing to. This reality that they're living now in the end. That's what amazed them. And so in your handout, I was constantly confirming this reality. But, but now practically, what was the difference? Because, you know, we could all say, well, you really are hyping this up, which I hope you're not saying that because the Bible doesn't hype things. It just tells us the way things were. But maybe you would say to me, you're really hyping things up. What's the real difference here? What's changed? What's, what's actually happened? So Luke answers this question in verses 44 to 47. Actually, 45. We're stopping at 45 this morning. And all those who had believed were together. That's so, so simple. So easy to just kind of, let's get to the next part. But we've got to camp out there for just a second. That word, together, it encapsulates what was the concrete, tangible expression of all these eschatological realities. All this fancy stuff, this eschatological talk, it's all encapsulated in that word, in a sense, in the word together. At least this is where we see the expression of it. We could say that all those who had believed were together in their devotion to the teaching of the apostles. They were together in their devotion to the fellowship. They were together in their devotion to the table and to the prayers. That word together, Greek has a word for together. Just one simple word, and we're going to see that in a minute. But here, it's not just one word, it's a phrase. It's three words. And you could translate those words literally, in or at the same. And you would usually supply the word place. In the same, at the same place, usually. So in Luke 17, you have the literal meaning here. There will be two women grinding grain at the same place, at the same place. Those three words are the words we have here in in Acts for together. But in other places, the emphasis is not just on the fact that, oh, we're all together because we're all sitting in the same space here, in the same four walls. It's better than that. It's, it's a unity. It's a oneness of heart, a oneness of soul, mind, and purpose. So we read in Matthew chapter 22. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves. And I'll just make the point here. The word there is sunago, synagogue, synagogue, a gathering of the people. Um, so sunago means to gather together. It already means that. So when you see the word together, you didn't need that. Already had it. Now we have that phrase, that Greek phrase of three words. They were gathered, they gathered themselves together, and then it's like, in the same place. Well, you already told me they gathered themselves together. You don't need to say, in the same place. What's the point? It's redundant. Just to know that they're all in the same room. Do we know to the size of the room? Is this what the point is? No, it's not. The phrase, the expression, is telling us more than that. The emphasis is on being gathered together, not just in the same place, but gathered together and united as one with a single-minded purpose. It defined them here. Now, in negatively, in the case of the Pharisees, because they were gathered together to try to trap Jesus, but they were all agreed. They were all united. 
So in Acts chapter 4, the apostles quote from Psalm 2. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered. There it is again, sunago. You could just say gathered together. There you got it already. But no, they add this gathered together. And this is again a negative example against the Lord and against his Christ. They had one common shared purpose. Let us cast off their yoke from us. Here in Acts, we've already had this expression two times. So Acts one fifteen. here's where we kind of build. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the brothers. A crowd of about 120 persons was, and he could have used your normal mundane humdrum word for together. Instead, he uses this word, this phrase. They were all there in the same place. But again, the point isn't just in the same place. It's more on there in your handout there, togetherness. There was a togetherness that characterized these Christians. Their being gathered together in the same place was expressive of a deeper down, more beautiful, more wonderful reality of their togetherness in heart and soul, one mind, one purpose. In fact, the previous verse, Jesus, Luke just, just finished saying, these all with one accord were continually devoting themselves to prayer. So that's the first time we see together. Then in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, and when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were, and Luke just loves this phrase, they were all together, Okay, but that's, that's your normal humdrum word for together, hamu. But then he says, in the same place. And again, don't think for a minute that Luke just wants you to emphasize it was on the same bit of real estate. Why is he so emphatic? Because it's expressive of a deeper togetherness. Now, I'll ask you the question. If this kind of stuff was true before the Spirit came, how much more is it going to be true after the Spirit has been poured out? So now what does Luke say? He says, absolutely. I think I have a slide here. Yeah. Uh, and all those who had believed were together. Period. Absolute. We see then that they were together in the most wonderful, the most beautiful sense of that word. And I encourage you then to enjoy the togetherness here. Not just that we're all in the same room, but that we're united with a common purpose, intent, goal. This is what we share right now. It's a beautiful thing. I love looking out at you knowing you're here for the same reason I'm here, with the same love and the same goal. In an almost identical context in chapter 4, which we're going to look at this morning, Luke will say, the congregation of those who believe, so he, it's almost like a direct repeat of here, but then he says, they were of one heart and soul. Specifically, as we're about to see, they were together in their shared, in your handout, their shared love and mutual care for one another. So how was this new togetherness of this eschatological community, how was it tangibly expressed? Now we've seen ways that it was already, like this. This is one way, one important way. But Luke tells us in verses 44 to 45, and all those who had believed were together, and this togetherness was seen in that they had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and we're dividing them up with all as anyone might have need. Okay, now here is an astonishing new reality in the world. Okay, This is new. This has never truly existed in the history of the world, this reality. Those who entered, there was a Jewish sect of the Essenes. They, they, they had withdrawn out into the desert at a place called Qumran, and they were waiting for the Messiah to come. 
as many were, but they were, they were going to be the prepared people. They went into the desert because that's where the Messiah was to come through, right? Prepare the way in the, in the wilderness. So they went out to meet him, essentially, to be, to be there to, when he came. And to get into that community, you had to surrender all your property for the common use of the community. It was required. But, of course, there's no hint here, to the contrary, of anything obligatory or required. So one of the things, if you go to even to things like Greek tenses, but I'll just say that the fact is that the sharing and the selling and the dividing, it was going on incessantly, constantly. It just kept on going on, which means you weren't required to do that upon initiation or it would be one and done. It's over. None of this was required. Not everything was sold at once. And not everything was sold, period. It goes without saying that, of course, in our day and probably at many times in church history, people have sought to find in this what some have called a communism of love. They use this communism phrase. They look for a, a support from the scriptures for socialism. And... I don't want to deal with all that. That's so blatantly not true. But but we do want to focus on the positive. Luke will tell us in chapter 4. Now Joseph, who was also called Barnabas and who owned a field, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now look at that. Number one, Barnabas didn't apparently sell the house he lived in. He sold a field he owned. And the very fact that Luke highlights Barnabas' act and says, wow, look what look what Barnabas did. He sold a field and brought the money. And it was a positive example of what was going on in the, in the community. That shows that this was not expected, much less required. It was wholly voluntary. Now, what happens? I like it better when things are required of me, because then I have to. Right? So, if we think, oh, good, it's voluntary. I'm off the hook. I don't have to. Well, that's the, that's the kernel response to voluntarism, right? But it was voluntary, and that was, the, that was the beauty of what was happening here. The Spirit moved and worked in such a way that a man sells a field, donates all the proceeds to the, to the work of the church in providing for the needy. Immediately after the example of Barnabas, Luke gives the contrasting example of Ananias and Sapphira. A man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. He doesn't say he sold his property, as in all of it, but he sold a piece of it. I don't think he sold his house that he lived in. Neither is it apparent that he sold all of his additional property holdings. He sold a piece of property. Apparently he's a rich man. He's probably got a lot of pieces. He sold that one. But when he brought part of the proceeds of his sale to Peter, he lied to the Holy Spirit by pretending he brought it all. So Peter said to him, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? What's that called? That's called private property. And after it was sold, was it not under your authority? That's called private wealth. And Peter's saying, it, it remained your own. It was your own. This Ananias was already in the community, and, and he had not sold it. While he had not sold it, it was his own. Why is it that you have laid this deed in your heart? You have not lied to the men, but to God. So let's just point this out. This would not, there would not necessarily have been any sin if Ananias kept his property. If he kept all, let's say he sold his property, but kept all the proceeds. Not necessarily any sin there. What if he contributed only part of it, but told the truth and said, he didn't pretend to bring it all, he just gave some money. Not necessarily a sin there either. Though there might have been greed. There might have been covetousness. I have this extra property, I see the needy who are going without, and yet I won't sell this extra property to meet the need? Right? No requirement, but is that a sign of greed and covetousness? Ananias' sin 
was not in failing to give everything, but we know lying to the Holy Spirit to gain a good reputation. Now, going back to the Essenes, they were required, they had to surrender all their property to the common use. Now, I think they kept private ownership, but it was basically common use surrendered. And the point was, not for the sake of meeting needs in the community, but for the sake of purification. They were to be purified by kind of separating themselves from the material stuff going on in life. So they were looking for purification. It wasn't about necessarily concern for a needy brother or sister. What was so astonishing about this brand new reality of sharing and selling, dividing, was it was all completely voluntary. And it was all the expression of this wonderful togetherness. Coming back to that. Of a shared love and mutual concern and care for one another. That's beautiful, isn't it? Well, we just we got to get out of our heads, though, because we can come to this and be like, oh, but this, but that, or let's qualify it with this. No, let's just see what was good about this. This was beautiful. It was, in your handout, a doing of the fellowship. Now, let's just put this in more perspective. I'm going to quote from a commentator here. He, he says, the Greeks, we've talked about the Jewish, the, Jew, the Jewish Essenes, but the Greeks shared a common myth that in primitive times, people lived in an ideal state in which there was no ownership. This all sounds really familiar, doesn't it? Let's just realize that some people in our day, probably a lot of people, are promoting this ideal, this idea of uh, no private property and all this because they want to destroy our country. They are sinister, and their goal and desire is to destroy what has been good. But let's also remember that there are many others who, in, in their sincerity, have a true desire to accomplish something ideal and good. And let's not paint everyone with the same brush. Everyone who promotes these ideas wants to destroy America. Some people think they're going to make it better. And so the Greeks are just like all those people at some level. They, they saw the problems in the world and they said, we want to fix these problems at some level. They envisioned some ideal utopia. And they wanted to get it. And so they, they had this myth that in primitive times, that's what there was. Everything was held in common. Plato, who several hundred years before Christ, envisioned his ideal republic as one devoid of all private ownership. For some Greeks, communal ownership was a major part of their dream of a golden age. Now, I can't fault them for wanting a golden age. Who of us would? Apparently, though, they believed that state communism, to use the phrase anachronistically, state communism could achieve this ideal. And what was this ideal? Part of it was the elimination of all poverty, of all destitution, of all impoverishment in society. But this utopian ideal that we'll see could never ever be realized by the world or by any form of state communism as history has proven and as the scriptures could have told us before history tried that ideal that utopian ideal never could be realized by the world is now in this messianic eschatological community finally being realized In short, the impossible, since the, since the fall, the impossible is happening here. That's what's going on. That's the eschatological reality here. Now, I know that the Greeks, putting the Greeks in it doesn't really prepare us for eschatological. It, it does, though, help us to see that. We're going to see it more clearly in a minute. But the Greeks also had an ideal of friendship. So they had this utopian ideal of communal ownership, no private property. They also had an ideal of friendship, according to which true friends 
quote, this is the, the same language they used, held everything in common and were of one soul. Aristotle, who came before Plato, he was reputed to have defined a friend as one soul dwelling in two bodies. Such expressions became commonplace. And you say, why are we quoting Greek philosophers? Well, because Luke had them in mind. That's why we're doing it. And we know, we see that because when Luke says in chapter 2 that also, all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, a phrase common in his day, used by people who were in the tradition of the Greek philosophers. And when he says in chapter 4 that the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, Aristotle and many others had used the phrase one soul for friends. And that for them, everything was common, again, those words evoked an immediate response in his Gentile readers because what they esteemed, what they held out before themselves as this unattainable ideal. I mean, you've got Aristotle, you know, Aristotle, Plato. These are your ultra-idealistic philosophers saying, this is the ideal, this is the way it should be. And of course, everyone else is going around and saying, yeah, you philosophers, you can talk about all that, but this is the way things are. What they esteem as an unattainable ideal has become a reality in this young Christian community. In fact, what had become a reality in this community was far in your handout, you know the word, right? More wonderful than even Plato's and Aristotle's highest ideals, right? Make room, Plato and Aristotle. We're leaving you in the dust because what you envision as the ideal is not close to what God, God creates by his spirit. The Greeks pursued the ideal of friendship. And according to one commentator, friendship in the Greco-Roman mold often involved reciprocity, meaning I do a favor for you, and because you're in the same social status that I'm in, you can do a favor for me, and we're friends, right? And we're one soul between those who are social equals. But Luke portrays a community where funds are provided for those who are needy without any thought of return. Thus he is suggesting something more akin to family duties. Not only was there no thought of return because the needy can't pay you back, but because you didn't give direct to the needy, you gave you, you brought your money, laid it at the apostles' feet, and then it was distributed. So the poor person, the needy person, whose money was he getting? Was it yours? Who did he thank? There was no one to thank. You didn't get thanked. You didn't do it with thought of return. The Greeks then, in, in your handout, pursued the ideal of friendship. But what has now been realized in this end times community is the ideal of family family with all of the family's privileges and responsibilities we know how it is in a family right you have obligations to one another because we're blood brothers and sisters and parents and children and that's that's the way that works in a family there are privileges and responsibilities both the greeks and the Jewish sect at Qumran imagined an ideal that could only be achieved finally if it was enforced, which is something that can only result in the destruction of a society. Here, and, and that's the problem, when you hear people talking, even Christians talking, what, what Christians have done today, we'll see this in a minute, is they've mixed up the state and the church. And they have supposed that we ought to, that the ideal that can exist in the church, we should, we should make it happen in the world. And the only way to happen, make it happen in the world is by forcing it, is by, is by making it a state requirement. This is a fundamental misreading of Scripture. It's so fundamental. It's almost like 
it, it, it's just, it's not, you're not even reading the Bible anymore. We've, 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 in fact, we've lost the, the beauty of the church in this reading of Scripture. So the Greeks imagined something that could only be enforced, but here in this messianic eschatological community is the realization of a far higher ideal of the world than the world could ever have imagined. Why? Because it's completely voluntary. How is that? You know, that's why everyone's like, got to make a law for this. Got to, got to force everyone to give their money. Got to force everyone to pay these taxes. No, not in the church. Voluntary. And that's why it's not destructive. Because the Spirit has done the work. It's the result of the Spirit poured out. The fellowship created the deep togetherness of God's people. Now, while the Greeks imagined their mythic, okay, mythic, keyword, utopian ideal, achieved by a state communism, God had already called his people to the true utopian ideal in the Old Testament law. So we read in Deuteronomy chapter 15, at the end of every seven years, which was the end of the agricultural year, the normal time for repayment. When did you repay your debts? When you got your harvest. Because that's how money worked. You shall grant a, I just put it, in, it could be temporary. There's a lot of debate about it. I'm unsure. could be a temporary remission of debts, like a deferring payment, defer, calling the loan off for one year, or it could be permanent. Because every seventh year the land was to lie fallow, so you can't you can't you can't make a payment on your loan when you didn't plant any crops. And this is the manner of remission. Every creditor shall temporarily or permanently release what he has loaned to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, and his brother shall um, uh, of his neighbor and his brother, because the remission from Yahweh has been proclaimed. From a foreigner you may exact it because the foreigner was not subject to the law of the seventh year. Maybe he was still planting his crops in the seventh year, because he's a foreigner. But your hand shall temporarily release whatever of yours is with your brother. Payment is to be deferred for one year, or perhaps there's another way to understand. All right, look at what's going on there. First of all, there's no commercial loans in Israel. You didn't borrow money to go into business. The only way, the only reason you borrowed money in Israel was was to clothe your children and put food on your table. That's why all loans had to be interest-free. You don't charge interest on a loan to a poor brother so he can put clothes on his children. It's immediately after this law, then, about the remission of those debts, those debts to poor brothers who are struggling to survive, that Moses goes on to say, Indeed, and here's the utopian ideal, Indeed, there will be, or there is to be, no needy person among you. Now, the social justice people are going to read that, and I'm sorry, they're going to murder that verse in that passage. That is... That is not what, this cannot be used for that. And we see this here. There will be no needy person among you, since Yahweh will surely bless you in the land which Yahweh your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess. If only you listen obediently to the voice of Yahweh your God to be careful to do all this commandment which I am commanding you today. Now I want to ask you this question. Is Moses saying that because... There is to be no needy person among the people. Therefore, this law that I just gave you about remitting the debts of your poor brother, that law should ultimately be rendered irrelevant. Because by the time you get no needy people, um, then you won't be borrowing and lending. So this law, you can scrap it, essentially, because it won't be relevant. Or, is Moses saying that it is precisely this law this law that I'm giving you about remitting debts on the seventh year, whether it's temporarily or permanently, it is this law 
that will result in there being no needy person among you. In other words, is he saying that the people, if the people will be careful to do all the commandment which he is commanding them, then there will always be plenty to lend. Plenty to lend to your poor brother, interest-free. And then even when you have to remit and defer payment on that debt in the seventh year, it'll be no burden on you because God provides abundantly. It's important for us to understand this. And we read the Bible through a lens. But let's read it through the correct lens. God was not promising here that if everyone in Israel obeyed his laws, then everyone in Israel would be wealthy. Or, let's put it this way, everyone in Israel would be part of this affluent middle class, like we all, like many of us here in America, right? He wasn't saying, if you all obey me, I'm going to have this really affluent middle class that everyone will be part of. No. He was calling his people to an obedience which would result in the elimination of impoverishment and destitution among the poor in Israel. In other words, no one but the lazy sluggard and the ungodly fool was ever to go without in Israel. Let's be clear, the lazy sluggard and the ungodly fool were to go without in Israel. But apart from them, no one should go without. No one. The Greek word that's used to translate the Hebrew word for needy in Deuteronomy, it's only here in the entire Pentateuch. Only here. It's a pretty rare word. And the basic meaning is to be lacking or to be without. So one Greek dictionary says it means pertaining to lacking what is needed or necessary for existence. Another commentator says it refers to those without the means of subsistence or the, necessar- or the necessaries of life. It's this destitute, impoverished person that is not to exist in Israel. Why? Because of obedience to God's law. There will always be an overabundance in Israel to meet all these needs. To meet every need of every poor brother so that no one goes without or lacks any basic necessity of life, which is summarized in the Bible as food and clothing. Now, the point here isn't that, well, let's just get you to the bare, bare ability to not die, right? That's not the picture here, and that's what some really stingy people might interpret this as. It is not. Food and clothing doesn't mean that there's not other necessaries of life fall under that. But it's the basic idea. We see then, let's just put it in another perspective, God was not saying that there should cease to be any poor lower class in Israel. A lower class, I just mean people who don't have as much money as some other people. He wasn't saying that there should cease to be that poor or lower class. Or that there should cease to be any need for generous giving or lending. Everyone should be wealthy, so there should no longer be any giving. That's not what he was saying. He wasn't saying that there should come a day when each man could settle down and enjoy his wealth without any thought for anyone else because everyone else will be just as wealthy as he was. This then is what explains how Moses can go on to say in verses 7 to 11, If there is a needy one among you, wait a minute, I just thought you said there's not supposed to be any needy among them. Well, you say, what's this if? No, that's just giving us an example now. So let's just look at this example. If there's a needy one among you, one of your brothers, in any of your gates of the towns in your land, which Yahweh your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your needy brother. But you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Beware, lest there be a vile thought in your heart. Now, this is really a voluntary thing, because there was no law that prescribed. This was not a tax. This was a voluntary exhortation to the people. 
So we see this utopian ideal here, right? There shall be no vile thought in your heart saying, the seventh year, the year of the remission of debts is near, and your eye then is hostile toward your needy brother because you don't want to give him and then have to defer payment. And so then you give him nothing. Then he may cry to Yahweh against you, and it will be a sin in you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing, Yahweh, your God, will bless you in all your work. Look, right? If you obey the Lord, he'll bless you. And there will be an abundance of not only for you, but for you to provide for the needy. So that they might not be destitute. He will bless you in all your work and in all that you send forth your hand to do. And then he says this, for the needy will never cease to be in the land. And, I, you know, a lot of commentators there, they say that, well, this is just the, just the, you know, the reality, because they're all going to fail and they're all going to be sinful. That's why there's still going to be needy people in the land. I don't think that's the point. He's saying there's always going to be people to whom you can be generous, and you need to be generous. Therefore, I am commanding you, saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your afflicted and needy in your land. So in one sense, the needy would never cease to be in the land. There would always be a poorer, poorer, lower class, quote-unquote. I don't like lower class because it sounds like inferior or something. Maybe there's another word to use. Because I'm a lower class than some people, but I'm not inferior. How many of you have ever envied someone who has more money than you have? I'm guessing everyone. I I have. And then then I'm convicted about it. Right? You realize. So we have, there's always going to be the poorer, lower class, who, who will depend to some extent for sufficient food and clothing upon the just generosity of those God has chosen to bless with greater material wealth. But because there should always be an abundance of wealth to be shared, it can also be said with equal truth, there should in your handout never be any needy person among the people. Sadly, though, we know that ideal was never realized in the Old Covenant Israel because Old Covenant Israel was disobedient, dead in its sins, and did not have the Spirit. Over and over in the Old Testament, what are the people condemned for? For how they treated the poor and the needy, the impoverished, destitute brothers and sisters inside the covenant community. Now what do we see? We see in this, in this new messianic community, more than the utopian ideal of the Greeks and more than the moral ideal of the Jews. The fulfillment is better than the old covenant shadow. The togetherness that we saw in the, in the first verse we looked at of this community was to be of such a kind that they even had all things in common and were selling their property and possessions and were dividing them up with all as anyone might have need voluntarily, all the time, continually. And if Moses then could say to Old Covenant Israel, there will be or there is to be no needy person among you, that was future tense. You know what Luke says? And you know he's quoting Moses here, but, but in, an, in light of an eschatological reality, Luke says, For there was not. Not there would be, or there should be, or there is to be. He says, there was not. And the tense is imperfect. The idea being, there was continually not any needy person among them. That is the brand new eschatological reality of togetherness in the fellowship. Luke uses the same word for needy that we see in Deuteronomy. It's the only place in the New Testament we see that word used. Which tells you, Luke says, here's Deuteronomy 15. Better than ever. 
Luke's point is that the ideal of Old Covenant Israel is finally fulfilled. At the same time, he would have us see in that fulfillment the true realization of all the misguided utopian ideals of the Gentiles. So Luke writes in chapter 4, And the congregation of those who believed were, instead of saying together, he says they were of one heart and soul, and not one was saying that any of his possessions was his own. But for them, everything was common. And with great power, the apostles were bearing witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as, according as, to the degree that any had need. You see, this was not about equality. It was about meeting these basic needs. Not one was saying that any of his possessions was his own. Well, clearly, people did have their own possessions. It's just they weren't saying it was their own. So as one commentator says, I'm going to quote him three times, three different places here. He just puts it so well. While every man who had possessions still retained them, he was so inspired, not with mere philanthropy or pity, but with a sense of Christian oneness. Okay, that's the key, brothers and sisters. He was inspired by a sense of Christian oneness, togetherness. That he did not speak of his possessions as his own, but as belonging to the church at large. A virtual community of goods arising from the practice of the most disinterested and self-sacrificing Christian love. Now, if any of us are afraid that that's a modern commentator who's been painted with socialistic, communistic, Marxist ideas, which is, we can start to read that. I'm a little suspicious about that. No, this is like your ultra-conservative guy in the 1800s writing that. I think in our just reaction against what we see happening in our culture, we can forget what we have been called to in the community of Christ's kingdom. He says later, such was the unity of feeling and affection in the infant church that notwithstanding their numerical increase, they seemed to constitute a single household with identity of interest and even of possession. No one regarded his possessions as belonging absolutely to himself, but as a trust for the benefit of others also. Now I suppose we could make this sermon a lot longer if we took time to just kind of say, well, what does that mean about all your wealth that you have and about providing for your retirement and your future and your family, right? What does this mean about the fact that we live in a culture where none of us here are destitute and impoverished? Does that mean then that none of this applies and we don't have to be concerned with the needs of a poorer brother or sister who's struggling? It, it goes to our hearts. What, what, I, what, what we're being called to hear, see here is something wonderful and beautiful and to then examine ourselves and say, where am I? Have I seen this? We read in the next verse in chapter 2, and, and of course we do see this in many ways, the, having things in common, daily devoting themselves with one accord in the temple and breaking bread. From house to house, it sounds like no one's house was off limits, right? I don't know. Did you wait for an invitation? Yes, it was private property. You just didn't barge in. But I'm sure it was like you just maybe there was some kind of an assumption that, yeah, everyone's house. Acts chapter 12. Peter went to the house of Mary, 
the house. You know, never did genitives become more more practical. The the genitive case in Greek. It was the house of Mary, which means Mary's house, right? She owned it, private ownership. The mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So, yes, it was her house, but it was for communal use. It was a trust given to her for the use of the community. Is that how we see our houses? Not only did everyone have all things in common, but those who had extra land or houses were selling them and bringing the proceeds of the sales and laying them at the apostles' feet to be distributed to each. And again, he uses that word according as or to the degree that any had need. So we point out one more time, the point here is not the elimination of the poor. That's just practically not possible or feasible. But the elimination of all impoverishment and destitution among the poor. And that's not to say that the poor shouldn't try to improve their lot, or that we shouldn't try to help the poor improve their lot. That's not to say that either. But the point here is not that. The point here is that there should be no impoverishment and destitution among the poor, among us. Within, in your handout, this new eschatological community. In other words, while there is a time and a place for giving to the poor in the world, this eschatological ideal, when we understand that it is an eschatological ideal, we will understand that it can only be achieved within this eschatological people. Any attempt to achieve this ideal in the world is doomed to failure with catastrophically destructive results. And I, I, I want to say again that, that there are many, many Christian leaders who have failed to see this fundamental distinction in the teaching of scriptures. There are many Christian leaders who have not, and who you can listen to and find and and learn from. But be careful. I, I pray you can grasp this. Because many Christians are being led astray by false teaching in this in this area. Therefore it is all the more now, okay. If any attempt to achieve this ideal in the world is doomed to failure, what does that mean then? It means that it is all the more important that we here are faithful to display to the world the reality of this ideal in Messiah's church. What we have here is no philanthropy. I mean, Banish the word philanthropy from your vocabulary in the church. It doesn't exist. Philanthropy should not exist in the church, ever. Neither should charity. Charity does not exist in the church. Far from it. What exists in the church is the duties and privileges of family. There is no charity in my family. There's no philanthropy in your family at home. So there is none here. It's the duties and privileges of the fellowship that we have with one another in Jesus the Messiah. On the one hand, um, even in America to a point, right? And we don't know who, as God grows the the body, we we don't know the, the changing makeup of the body and different things, but But we can say as a general idea throughout history, the needy will never cease to be among us. On the other hand, there is no longer to be any needy brother or sister among us. And what a powerful witness that ought to be to the world around us. The world who for centuries and millennia has said, let's try to get that and can't. 
It's here. Due to our affluent culture, which is a very unique thing in history, and due to our appropriate rejection of all communist and Marxist ideology, we can all too easily be blinded to the true eschatological ideal that can only be realized here in this true eschatological community. May we not be guilty of that. In Luke's first volume, his gospel, which we're going to come back to in part two next week and look a lot more, look at a lot more length, Jesus spoke of this ideal. And he spoke of it as a reality that was going to be here under his present rule and reign. Truly I say to you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, farms, with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. So, may God cause us, us and his church, to be always together, one heart and soul, for our joy, for our witness to the world, for the glory of God. Dear Heavenly Father, already, perhaps, we are convicted about our whole approach to money and possessions and private property. And it's not about private property, we know. It's simply about the heart. Lord, I pray that we pray together now that this, that this reality of no needy person among them, uh, of, this, of this virtual community of goods where they saw their possessions not as absolutely their own, but as a trust. Lord, may, may, may our hearts be so be so lifted up with the reality of our togetherness, of being of one heart and soul, that they are weaned from the love of money and things, of, of standards of livings, and that we have a true care and a true love for the brothers and sisters. Father, we recognize we live in a day when all of us are, by historical standards, all of us here are wealthy and rich, every single one in this room. So help us in in a time like this to be aware of the dangers to our souls, remembering that not money but the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Help us to remember that the community and the togetherness and the fellowship that exists transcends this local body and extends to our poverty-stricken brothers and sisters around the world. So let us consider, Lord, how we may be wise stewards of what you have given to us in trust even as we also enjoy, as people who have been blessed with wealth, as we learn to enjoy with thanksgiving the things that we can enjoy and that so many cannot, we enjoy it for a time, knowing that tomorrow we may not. Let us, Lord, have the right, the right heart, the right approach to these things, not judging a brother, or a sister, remembering the voluntary nature of all of these things and yet remembering 
that you constantly look at and evaluate our hearts. We pray, Lord, that as we, as we live together, that this, this thing, this ideal that has been realized in this community would be a witness to the world and to those around us. That others might see what has been accomplished here through the Spirit, through the Messiah, through faith in his name. Thank you for the joy of being a part of the family of God with all of its privileges and all of its responsibilities. In Jesus' name, amen.